So, just a few more days to go, and then it's going to be a wonderful time in the house of the Lord. I've been talking to Paul James this week, and Paul, I want you to come with me to John's Gospel, chapter 18. John's Gospel, chapter 18. Now, this Sunday morning, just before Easter, uh, we're going to, while we're thinking and focusing, obviously, uh, on the events around Easter, uh, we're going to take a fresh look at the arrest of Jesus uh, in the garden. The arrest of Jesus in the garden. This is an incredible story uh, that portrays Christ's obedience to the Father. It shows us his tremendous uh, power over his enemies, his amazing act of compassion uh, to one of his assailants, uh, his awful betrayal, and of course, proof of proof was needed uh, that no one could take away his life without his permission. And so we want to begin reading on chapter, in chapter 18, and uh, let's see then and familiarize ourselves again with this story, and let's see, uh, perhaps we'll look at it with new eyes at this Sunday morning. And so... In verse 1 of chapter 18 of John's Gospel, when Jesus had spoken these words, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. <clears throat> now remember, <clears throat> excuse me, remember that the sequence of these events and how that uh, Jesus had his last supper with his disciples and uh, how during that uh, he said that one would betray him. And remember how he gave the sop uh, to Judas and said, what you do, uh, do quickly. And of course, he knew who the betrayer was. Although amazingly, none of the other disciples recognized Judas as a traitor. But Jesus, knowing the heart of all men, knowing that Satan had entered Judas's heart, knew full well what was about to take place. And so, having spent some time in prayer, and while they were praying in the garden, then lo and behold, then Judas comes with this uh, detachment of soldiers and officers of the temple guard. Now, the word detachment there, uh, some of your translations says a band, and it's actually a cohort of soldiers. Now, a cohort of soldiers, Roman soldiers, was anything from 300 to 600 soldiers, plus probably dozens of the temple guards. So that's a lot of people. In Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, both of them say that Judas had with him a multitude of soldiers. And of course, they were all armed to the teeth. Uh, the Roman soldiers would have their swords and their spears at the very least. Uh, the temple guards would have clubs and staves. 
And all of them had torches and lanterns in their hands. Now this was during the time of the Passover. Just coming up to the Passover. It would be the time when there would be a full moon in the sky. Uh, you may wonder then, why had they torches and lanterns? Well, there would be lots of caves within the garden precincts that they could, Jesus and his disciples, if they so desired, could hide in those, or headstones and monuments that they could hide behind. And so they came fully armed and fully ready uh, to make this arrest. Why such a large crowd of soldiers, you may also ask? Well, perhaps in their minds they were thinking that the whole garden would have to be surrounded uh, lest anyone should escape. Perhaps they were also thinking that maybe uh, Christ's disciples would, uh, uh, would stand and uh, fight. Uh, maybe they were thinking that maybe the word would get out if one of them escaped and there would be a popular uprising against this. Uh, maybe, who knows, maybe they were thinking that after all, they knew all about Jesus and his miraculous powers. Uh, they knew that this was the man who raised the dead. This is the man who fed 5,000 plus people with just five little loaves and two fishes. This is the man who walked on water, who made the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak and the lame to walk. And so they knew that he was quite capable of some, uh, doing some miraculous thing. So maybe for any of those reasons, for all of those reasons... Uh, that they felt they required such a large uh, number of soldiers. And so, uh, as we read on here, you see something uh, in a moment in chapter 18 again. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers of the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now notice here that he is in italics. So that means that the translators having no word there originally, they put the word he in there, in their minds, uh, to try to make more sense of what Jesus was saying. Actually, uh, they've been far better leaving it out because it made perfect sense without adding the he into it. Because when Jesus said, I am he, he literally says, I am. And when he said, I am, this is a term that he used uh, more than once in the New Testament. Before Abraham was I am. And also in John 13 and 19, he says, Now I tell you before it comes, when he was speaking about the betrayal, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am, and they added a he in there also, that I am. And so these are the tremendous words that Jesus, uh, sorry, that, uh, that God spoke to Moses way back in the book of Exodus chapter 3. You remember how Moses met God in that wonderful way at the burning bush. And how that God commissioned him and appointed him at that point to, to go back to Egypt and to face uh, Pharaoh. And he said, but I've got to go and tell my people. Uh, who will I tell them sent me? In fact, if I just read this, Moses said, then God, Moses said to God, 
Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you, sent me to you. Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And that was one of the great names of God. I am, not I was or I will be or I might be or I could be or I should be, but I am. And so when Jesus said those words, I am, something tremendous happened. At that point when he said those words, I am. Um, there was an unleashing of God's power. There was an explosion of God's mighty power that absolutely just poleaxed all of those soldiers and Judas who was standing among them. And suddenly the power of God came upon them and it says that they fell back. When you read the original, it means they staggered and they reeled and they stumbled until they could do nothing else, only fall back. And so we see here the mighty working power of Jesus just by speaking that powerful name when he said, I am. Suddenly, they experienced a power that they had never known before. And they faced a power that they had never seen before. What a tremendous power were in those words. This is the creator of the universe This is the one who spoke the stars into existence. This is the one who was showing them at that particular moment who had the power and who had the authority. And if they were going to take him, it would only be because he would allow it. And in that moment, he demonstrated that he had all power and all authority over everything. You remember when he stood before Pilate, John 19 11. Pilate said, do you not realize that I have the power to kill you? Remember what Jesus said? You would have no power at all over me except it was given you from above. Letting Pilate know, yeah, you've got power, but actually the only power you have over me is because it's being allowed. And so in this tremendous demonstration of God's power, what a tremendous power our Savior has. What a Savior we serve. What a God we serve. But is all this amazing power. And then as we read on a little bit here, Then he asked them again, this is verse 7 of John 18, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. But notice this. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. And then the Holy Spirit records for us, the servant's name was Malchus. Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? 
If you look at Luke chapter 22, it records the same story. In verse 49, Then those around him saw what was going to happen. They said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Before they even got the answer, obviously it was Peter, impetuous Peter. One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear. And he healed him. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Now, we might be tempted to admire Peter's courage, but actually here it was just the arm of flesh. And Jesus really didn't need Peter's help at this point because everything was under his control. Everything was going according to God's plan. It seemed out of the control as far as Peter was concerned. But we know now in hindsight, and Jesus knew right then and there, that actually everything was under control. Now how often do we, how often do we, whenever we think everything's out of our control, that we lash out at those around us, particularly the one that we think caused the problem, and we lash out instead of believing that God has got things under His control in our lives. Malchus. This Malchus was Caiaphas, who was the high priest. It was his right-hand man. This was a very high official. And of course, Peter would recognize him as such. He'd recognize him probably by sight, but certainly would recognize him by his dress, knowing that Malchus was the one who probably behind the scenes were stirring things up against the master and the disciples, uh, were uh, said all kinds of slanderous things about Jesus. And of course at that moment, standing face to face with him, his flesh got the better of him. And he took out his sword and he slashed at him and cut off his right ear. Now Caiaphas, the high priest, and Malchus, the high official, both these men were Sadducees. Now the Sadducees and the Pharisees were two religious sects, and they were very, very different. The Sadducees was the more liberal, theologically speaking, of the two. The Pharisees would be the more conservative, the more fundamental. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, whenever they would read the Old Testament and they'd read the stories of the miraculous events of God, the Red Sea opening and so forth and all the plagues of Egypt and all those things, the Pharisees would believe those literally, the way you and I would believe them literally. Uh, because they were conservative and fundamental in those beliefs. So they believed in the supernatural power of God. They believed in the miraculous power of God. They believed all those Old Testament stories. But when it came to the Sadducees, they were liberal in their thinking. And so they would spiritualize all those stories. They certainly would not believe that they were actual literal happenings. 
much like the liberals in the wing of the church today. And there's so many today who are liberal in their beliefs. They believe that those things in the Old Testament, especially all those miraculous events, they were metaphorical. Uh, they were just kind of a, uh, allegories and little stories to teach some morality or some truth, but not really happening. And so that's the type of these. So for a, for a start, they did not in any way believe in the resurrection from the dead. And the Pharisees would, of course. And so Jesus having a miraculous, mighty miraculous ministry obviously was a great threat to them because they were the ruling, the religious ruling power of the day. They had the high priest and all the main officials, of course, would be Sadducees. And, uh, and so you can see how they were very, very much against Jesus. Now here's the amazing thing. I wonder how Malchus, I wonder how he felt Here's a man who did not believe in the miraculous supernatural power of God. I wonder how he felt when Jesus healed his ear. I wonder how he felt when Jesus picked down and took that out of the dust and stuck it back on again and suddenly it was totally and completely healed. I wonder did that change his mind. I wonder how that impacted his life from that point on. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it's just a little thing that often I think about and it kind of teases my mind. I wonder how he felt. He certainly could not deny the power of God anymore. Sure he couldn't. He couldn't deny a miracle anymore because he had one himself. Now whether that changed him or not, we don't know. But isn't it interesting that Jesus did that and that particular man and isn't it interesting also that that was the very last miracle that Jesus ever performed on earth? That was the last miracle. And the very last miracle he ever did, he did it to his assailant, to his enemy, to the one who hated him, to the one who was persecuting him. What compassion, what mercy. Apart from what power has Jesus got when you see that? Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? See, Jesus understood this perfectly. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Horrible and terrible as it would be. But you can understand the disciples. They didn't get it. Lots of things they didn't get. Even in the good times, in the popular times, lots of things they didn't get. Jesus tried to explain to them, and they certainly didn't get this. As far as they were concerned, I mean, their whole world was just spinning out of control here. I mean, this was just the beginning of the end as far as they were believing. But Jesus knew there was a higher purpose and a greater cause. And so Jesus said, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? And in Matthew 26, again telling the story. Matthew chapter 26. Jesus, verse 52 of Matthew 26, Jesus said to him, to Peter, 
Put your sword into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I can't, listen to this, do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then should the Scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Peter, put away your sword. Don't you think at this very moment, if I didn't want to do this, if this wasn't the Father's plan, don't you think at this moment I could call 12 legions of angels or more than that to my assistance? I want you to stop and think about that just for a moment. 12 legions of angels. A legion of Roman soldiers was up to six thousand men. A legion. Six thousand men. That's a lot, isn't it? Six thousand men. Multiply that by twelve times. Seventy-two thousand men. Twelve legions. Taken out at least twelve legions. Now what power has one angel got. Just one angel. Consider this for a moment. In Isaiah 37, verse 36. One angel, just one angel came and absolutely annihilated 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Just one angel. What could a legion of angels do? If one angel could kill 185,000, who's good at mental arithmetic? You haven't got your calculator with you today? Well, I'll just give you the figures in a moment. One legion, 6,000 angels could kill, could destroy 1,110,000,000 men. Multiply that by 12. For 12 legions of angels, you get 13,320,000,000 men. That is more than twice the population of the whole earth at the minute. Now, Jesus is speaking here in a way that's staggering. And he's just showing Peter, listen, if I want it, if I didn't want this to happen, he really got a demonstration of his power just by those six or seven hundred soldiers all falling down. But he says, listen, if I really want it, I could wipe out every human being on the face of the earth if I want it. But I don't want to. That's not the Father's plan. And that's not my plan. But I've got the power to do that if I need to. And so this is showing us that during all of this arrest and during all of his trial and during all of the crucifixion, if he had wanted to at any point in time, he could have stopped it and he could have wiped out all his detractors. In Revelation chapter 19, verse Nineteen, and I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies, 
gathered together to make war against him. He sat on the horse and against his army. This is speaking of Christ, by the way. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Two were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Just by the word of God, by speaking the word of God. That's all he needed to do. And here he's saying, if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels. Let's realize today that everything was in his power. Everything, it was within his gift to do what he wanted to do. And so that shows you the obedience to the Father's will. It shows you the humility that he had. It shows you how desperately he desired to save us, even though it meant going to the cross for us. Again in Matthew 26, verse 57, those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and the elders were assembled. And those who laid hold of Jesus Obviously because he let them lay hold on him. He already demonstrated they couldn't do it without his permission. Those who laid hold of Jesus, note this, led him away to Caiaphas the high priest. The word led him away, that term led him away, is apago. And apago is used in a number of ways. And one of the ways it is used It is used as in a shepherd putting a rope around a sheep's neck and leading it where he wants it to go. As a shepherd putting a rope around a sheep's neck and leading it where he wants it to go. Remember what it said in Isaiah 53, 7? He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. What an image. What an image of the creator of the universe who had all power and all authority allowed himself to be led as a lamb to the slaughter. And he opened not his mouth. What a Savior we have got. What a mighty Christ that we serve. What humility. What condescension. That He, the King of glory, the King of angels, would come down and allow man to lead him as a lamb to the slaughter and said nothing.
the midst of all of this. And I kept this to the end. In the midst of all of this, there was the betrayal. There was that dastardly, heinous, horrible, awful betrayal by Judas. Never was there greater treachery. Never was there a dirtier deed ever done in the history of the world than the betrayal by Judas. In Matthew 26, we need to read this just in a couple of places. Jesus was in the garden. He was praying. Remember the disciples fell asleep. Verse 45. And he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whoever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Seems a strange question, seeing he knows exactly why he has come. Friend, why have you come? In, in Mark 14, again the same story. Verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come to him, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. In Luke 22. This is the last. Verse 47. And while he was still speaking, Behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas had made his bloody packed with the Sanhedrin. He'd got his measly 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And of all the ways he could have betrayed the master, he chose a kiss. Not just any kiss. You have to understand what this kiss means. Remember Paul later on said, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now obviously it wasn't a kiss on the lips, it would be a kiss on the cheek. 
But it was a kiss that said much. It was a kiss that meant much. You just didn't kiss anybody like this. This was reserved for your closest, most intimate friends and relationships. It's a phileo kiss. It's a kiss of deep, deep friendship. And obviously, he had done this before in Jesus, as no doubt had the other of his disciples. It would be a greeting among dear friends. Now, you just don't go up the street and just hug the first stranger you see. Sure you don't. Some of these are not touchy-feely. You don't like to hug anybody. But if you've got a dear friend and you meet them, you can hug them. And so this kiss was poignant. It was precious. It would be something that would be intimate, that would be deep and meaningful. That's what it was supposed to be. But not for Judas. He chose that very thing to betray the Son of God. That's what makes it so heinous and so awful that he would take something that was so precious, he could have chosen any other way but a kiss. And if you read the original, it says he kissed him again and again and again. How awful. How terrible. And notice what he called him. Rabbi. Rabbi. Which means master or teacher. Which in and of itself is fine. I mean, that's, that is a, a, an honorable way to greet a rabbi or a teacher. But notice he didn't call him Lord. Didn't call him Lord. Because he wasn't his Lord. Had it been his Lord, he wouldn't have done this. He was a teacher. And he was a good teacher. But not Lord. So in front of all of those soldiers, he gave the token, he gave the sign. The one whom I kiss sees him. Think about it. Jesus said, I am the door if any man enter in. I am the door. The door to heaven. Judas kissed the very door of heaven, but he didn't enter in. He didn't enter in. I haven't time this morning to explain all of the theological debates that goes on about Judas, whether he was just a pawn and some cosmic game that God was playing and he had no choice and he had no will to do anything else. If you want to know how I feel about that, then get that series of messages I did years ago on the 12 apostles. Because when we come to Judas, I go into some of that explain to you that he had a choice to make and he made his choice.
It says in the scriptures, he fell by trespass. He trespassed. It's his sin caused him to fall. And Jesus said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? You know, if you were to read the story of Judas, particularly during that last few days of Jesus' life, you'd see how again and again and again Jesus was hinting at him, giving him clues, even in front of the other disciples, all of that. Do you know that Jesus even washed his feet? Do you remember when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples? He washed Judas' feet. And he says, one of you will betray me. I wonder did he look up at Judas when he said that. One of you will betray me. Giving him every opportunity, every chance to repent, to change, to turn. But his heart was set. Satan entered into him. And there was no turning back then. Later on he realized and there was remorse, not repentance, but there's remorse that he had betrayed innocent blood, didn't he? Remember how he took the money back to the temple, and they wouldn't take it. It was dirty money now, they said. I mean, they took it out of the treasure to pay him, but they wouldn't take it back even when he wanted to give it. How hypocritical is that? And he went out and he hung himself. And the Bible says when he hung himself that either the rope broke or the branch broke, but he fell on stones, and it says that his, his entrails all come out, his, his vitals all come out. Indicative that he had lost his vitals before he hung himself. His spiritual vitals had long since gone. What a savior! What what a that Jesus would say to him and called him friend, <laughs> friend, betraying the Son of Man with a kiss. Doesn't this want you to love Jesus all the more? Don't you see him compassionate and tender and merciful, forgiving and loving and gentle, and yet has all that power available? God willing, tonight, we're going to look at the trial of Jesus We've looked at his arrest, but we're going to look at his trial. Do you know he had five trials? Two religious, three civil trials. All of them are a farce. He was beaten so many times. Do you ever read those scriptures and put them together? Kind of try to follow the sequence. It's unbelievable what he went through. Tonight, God willing, we're going to look at that and see his trial, and see his crucifixion. We're going to look at the, what he went through, and the lies he was told against him, and the slander, and the blasphemy against him, and all of that. And yet he stood there, knowing what was coming, after the beatings, knowing what was ahead of him. And yet he did it for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. Chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes, 
Think about his stripes. If you come and see this film next Saturday night, you will be shocked if you've never seen it. And it is inaccurate. I'm not talking about the theological parts of it. Pretty good, but there's bits of it. But the physical, actual beating is as close to reality as you'll ever, ever see. The Bible says his visage, his form was so marred more than any man. He was unrecognizable. And he did all that for you and for me. How could you not follow this man? How could you not love this Savior? Huh? How could we not take up our cross and follow him? So God willing, that's what we're going to look at tonight. Prepare our thoughts and our minds for Easter. Of course, next Sunday we'll look at the resurrection. Wonderful, glorious, magnificent. What victory that is. But the price that he had to pay was phenomenal. And we'll look at that tonight. Amen. Let's pray. Those of you who are going to serve the table this morning, if you could just come up, please, and get it ready.